Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Jesus was continually harassed by the religious leaders as they sought to incriminate him. Instead of striking back, he answered with grace, providing them with an opportunity to leave their prejudice, receive the truth, and realize that he is the Messiah. Part three of Cheryl's message titled, Jesus is the Answer. If you go to the Bible and you don't see Jesus, and if you don't end up by reading and saying, Lord, you are so good, I want more of you, then the Bible is a lie to you and not life to you. The Bible is meant to give us life through Jesus Christ and take us deeper, deeper, deeper into the love of Jesus to solidify our relationship to Jesus again and again and again. That's why it doesn't matter how many scriptures you read, whether you read one or the whole book of Chronicles in one sitting, it doesn't matter because it's about what have you learned about Jesus Christ? How have you seen Jesus portrayed in scriptures? It's about relationship, relationship, relationship. It's about Jesus. Jesus. The whole volume of the book from Genesis to Revelation. It's about Jesus. Yeah, the answer to the Bible. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus then makes a connection to Daniel 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He sees all the kingdoms of man and a rock comes that is not not, um, hewn from stone and comes and it pummels all the kingdoms of men, turns them to powder and then sets up a kingdom and the rock rules over the kingdom forever and ever. And Jesus says on that rock, fall on that, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But whoever it falls, remember that rock again in Daniel. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter two. Wherever that rock falls, it grinds to powder. Jesus was giving them an opportunity to leave their prejudice, receive the truth, realize he is the Messiah, fall on the rock, but it would cost position, self-righteousness but there would be a salvation. Now there's more testing. Verses 19 through 26, the chief priest that very hour wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but they couldn't because of Jesus' popularity among the people. Jesus had done for the common people what the religious leaders never did. Jesus had lived among them. Jesus had loved on them. Jesus had healed them. Jesus had talked with them. Jesus had associated with them. Jesus had restored them 
to being the descendants and children of Abraham. And Jesus had offered them forgiveness of sins and salvation. So the chief priests watched him and they sent spies to entrap him. They hoped to seize upon his word, to trip up Jesus in his words, to get Jesus to say just one thing that they could use against him before men or before Caesar. So many today seize upon one word, one sentence, one statement taken out of context and do not measure it against the whole counsel of God or the whole man and everything that he has said. They use it to condemn, to disqualify, so they don't have to give an account. And the chief priest hoped to condemn Jesus. It's a trick question that they ask. They say, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says yes, the people will turn on them because they felt that the taxes were supporting the oppression of Rome and keeping Israel from their nationalism. If Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then the chief priest will go right to Pilate and the Roman authorities will seize him and condemn him for sedition. And the enemies of Jesus are sure. We've got him with this one now. But Jesus asked them a question. First of all, why do you test me? This only proved that they were the occupiers in the vineyard. They were looking on something to seize upon so they could kill the heir and owner of the vineyard. Why are you doing this? Their motivation is exposed. Then Jesus says, show me a denarius. Don't you love this? Jesus doesn't have a denarius. He doesn't go in his pocket and go, oh, here's a denarius. What do you see on this? He has to ask, anyone have a denarius? He lives so totally in dependence on his father. Anyone have a denarius? I love that. He doesn't even have a denarius. Then as the Pharisees pull out their denarius because they've got them, he says, whose whose inscription, whose name and image, whose image and inscription do you see? And they said, well, Caesar's. And on the denarius, not only was there a picture of Caesar, but the inscription read, Caesar, son of Caesar, son of the God Caesar, claiming Caesar is God with the son. And then Caesar's inscription, it was true that Caesar had minted his own money at his own expense. The denarius actually did in fact belong to Caesar. Jesus' answer is, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Whoever, 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 whatever the image you bear, who do you look like? In whose image are you? Because whoever's image you bear, that's the one that you owe your allegiance to. Whatever signature is written on your life, that's the one that you owe. Oh, give Caesar what he made in sign, but give God what he made and what he signed. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 say that man was created in the image of God and bear his likeness. And God has inscribed his signature on our lives with the blood of Jesus Christ. We owe our all to our creator, to the one whose image we bear. You know, some people, the longer they live, the more they bear the image of Satan. And they will give to Satan at the end of this life 
what is due to Satan. But to those who serve Jesus Christ, we're told in Corinthians that the more we look at Jesus, the more we behold him in the word, the more we bear his image and likeness so that we will render to God because we bear his image and his inscription. Now we come to the Sadducees. These were the very liberals. These were the religious liberals of the day. Ordinarily, they didn't get along with the Pharisees. However, they had all come together in their denouncement of Jesus. They were all part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, the leader of the Sanhedrin was a Sadducee. The chief priest, Caiaphas, and Ananias were both part of the Sanhedrin. The chief priests were both Sadducees. But Jesus had become a threat to their authority, their way of life, and their position. The Sadducees as a religious group maintained a mutual, advantageous relationship with Rome. Rome had given them authority to be high priest. Their authority did not come from their birthright. In fact, actually, the birthright belonged to Zacharias and his family. But they had bought this birthright from, I mean, they had bought the right to become high priests from Rome. As Sadducees, they didn't believe in anything spiritual. They naturalized every miracle of the Bible. In fact, they only believed in the law of Moses or the first five books of the Bible because they were written by Moses. So they said, we only believe in what Moses wrote. They did not take Joshua or Judges, Ruth for second, um, Samuel for second, uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, I forgot Kings. They didn't take any of those as authoritative, but only what was written by Moses as authoritative. And then again, they sought to naturalize, uh, make it symbolic or allegorical, the miracles that were found in those first five books. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead because that was spiritual. No heaven, no hell, no life after death. So they pose a hypothetical situation or a hypothetical question to Jesus. Now, it is a story, again, hypothetical. In other words, it never happened. But what if? It's a what if situation. But they don't really want to get Jesus' opinion But they want to justify and rationalize and defend their own opinion of not believing in a resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine resting your eternity, your eternal destination on a hypothetical situation? A what if? This is what a lot of people do. What about the people who never hear the gospel? What about the people who are in the darkest reaches of the jungle who don't hear the gospel? Therefore, this hypothetical question, because you don't know if they've heard the gospel or not, you're imagining some creature that's never heard the gospel. Therefore, I will not become a Christian because there might be some person out there in the deepest reaches of the jungle that's never heard. Therefore, I won't receive it. Can you imagine? That's, that's stupid. Don't tell my grandson I said that. Because that's a bad word in the Broderson household. Yes, Hudson said, Grandma, we don't use words like that in this house. Stupid. And I kept saying it. You know, the more I'm told not to say a word, the more it pops out. But imagine resting 
your eternal destiny on a hypothetical situation. And yet so many people do. The story that these Sadducees have is preposterous as best. It's about a woman who marries and outlives seven brothers. My dad used to always say whenever he would do this passage of scripture, I'd check the coffee. So they said, okay, according to the law of Moses, if a, if a man dies, his brother is to marry his wife. So now in this family, some poor woman gives birth to seven sons. And none of the other sons marry, just the oldest one. And his wife is passed from brother to brother to brother. And all seven men marry this woman and all seven men die. I think that's a black widow, isn't it? This story sounds ridiculous. And they really, yet they really thought they had Jesus with this one. I mean, how many questions when you put them up to the light of the reality of Jesus Christ is so senseless? Like the rock question. It becomes a nonsensical, crazy question because of Jesus' truth and wisdom and glory. But Jesus answers by explaining that heaven requires a whole new lifestyle. He uses phrases like those who are counted worthy, attained to that age, resurrection from the dead. These Sadducees have been devaluating and dismissing something that they should have seriously been considering. The resurrection wasn't something to have an opinion over, but something to seek to secure. Death is not a demotion, but a promotion to those who are counted worthy. Marriage is the right fit for earth, for procreation, for protection, for posterity. But angels are created for the environment of heaven, for the lifestyle of heaven. And those who are worthy are re-equipped, remade for heaven. We're corrupt. We have deficits here on earth. So we, we need, we need partnership. But when we get to heaven, where there's no corruption and no deficits, we will be remade. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortality will put on immortality. There will be a recreation, a transformation for those who are counted worthy. Heaven is not less than earth, but much more. You see, I think that's one of the mistakes. We try to put earth Earth's limitation, earthly limitations on heaven. That's what we try to do. We try to take earth with us to heaven. You know, Job said, naked I came into this world and naked I'm going to leave this earth. In other words, you have to leave everything that belongs to earth on earth, right? You can't take your piano. You can't take your dog. You can't take your money. You can't even take your clothes. You can't take your body, your bones, your eyes to heaven. What is of earth stays on earth. Heaven is a promotion. It's a greater glory. It's greater beauty. It's greater relationships. It's greater power and enablement. It's not less than. And yet we keep trying to say, but in heaven, will my dog be there? (laughs) I don't know about yours. Mine will. It's not less than, it's more than, but I want to be 
married to Herbert still. No, no. Herbert's been secretly praying for liberation. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's more than, it's more than earth. So much more that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It's greater, it's better. No one's going to get to heaven going, no, no. You know, I want it. I wanted my own bed. My pillow's not here. Where's the coffee? No one's going to do that. No deficits, no need for caffeine. Obviously, I've had mine. But in heaven, no deficits. It's a promotion. It's a better. It's a better than. It's a new lifestyle. It's equal to angels. You're called a son of God. We take on divinity when we get to heaven. Yes, we are called sons or daughters of the resurrection. And we can never, ever, ever, ever die. We can never feel pain. We can never feel deficit or hurt or that something's missing ever again. There's no sorrow or pain. But all things are passed away and all things have become new. No more threat, no more fear, no more anxiety ever Ever. Nothing that can harm in all of God's holy mountain. Jesus points to the scriptures that they accepted. To the physical patriarchs they claimed relationship to, to be related to. And he goes to Exodus 3, 6, where Moses, the lawgiver, the one that they said, we only believe in Moses and what he wrote. Where Moses, who was revered above everyone else to these men, In fact, at one point they go to Jesus and they say, we know Moses, but who are you? John chapter seven. Jesus points to the encounter that Moses had with God. His first encounter with God at the burning bush where God introduces himself to Moses. Where Moses first enters into relationship with God and there God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am presently. I am. Not I was. Hey, you remember, you know, your grandfather Abraham? Yeah, I was his God. You remember Jacob? Yep, I was his God. No, it's not a was. It is. I am presently right now. I'm looking at them. Moses showed that God is the God of the living not the dead. And verse 38, Jesus is recorded as saying, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Now, Jesus goes from answering their questions to asking them the ultimate question. The enemies of Jesus are silenced by his wisdom, his authority, his answers, and his word. And Jesus asks them a question. It is a question that forces them to consider the scripture and consider the implications of scripture. Jesus uses Psalm 110.1. And speaking of David said, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? You see, it was well known 
to the scribes, Pharisees, anyone who read the Bible, that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. It was promised to David by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. David wrote about it in Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 17, 22, 23, chapter 30, chapter 33, Ezekiel 37, 24 through 25, Hosea 3, 4 through 5, Amos 9, 11. Those and many others were told that the Messiah will be of the lineage of David. Yet, this Messiah will be Lord. David goes so far as to call him Lord. Same Greek word, kurios, as used for the name of God, the Lord. The Lord himself is acknowledging David's son as Lord, deity. God is ascribing deity to this king, who will come from the lineage of David. Jesus is pointing to the divine sonship of the Messiah. Jesus then addresses the prejudice that blinds men to salvation. It is a warning to all of us, beware, be on guard, don't catch this. Beware the attitude of the scribes. Their attitude, their desire kept them blind to the reality of what the scripture said to the authority of scriptures, to the authority of Jesus Christ, to the authority of John the Baptist. It kept them blind because they loved long robes. The longer their robe, the more important they were. Greetings in the marketplace, best seats in the synagogue, best places at feast. Their earthly ambitions blinded them to the reality of scripture and what all scripture pointed to. They loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. John 5, 44. Everything they did, their prayers were all about pretense to appear righteous outwardly, but they weren't, they weren't caring about the heart. Inside their heart was murder, but they wanted praise, position, and popularity among men. Their reality was an earthbound reality. They devoured widows' houses. They prayed long prayers and they would receive the greater condemnation because they knew better. They knew better. But their ambition and earthly desires outweighed the conviction of God in their lives. Jesus is the answer. Jesus does not give witty retorts, but his answers are meant to move us to acknowledge who he is that we might fall on the rock and be broken, that we might ultimately be counted worthy of the resurrection to life. Jesus does not give advice, opinions, suggestions, or philosophy. He speaks to the ultimate questions of life. As our creator and author and finisher of our faith, we owe everything to Jesus. As the God of the living, we live to Jesus. As the son of David, the Lord, we owe him all of our allegiance. We need to give the more earnest heat to Jesus' probing questions and answer him with Peter. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? It's not about the questions you demand of Jesus but ultimately about the questions and how you answer the questions of Jesus. It's about your answer to the authority of John. An honest answer, is it of heaven or of men? 
It's about how you answer. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those who reject his son? It is how you answer what is written in scripture. It is how you answer the question of why do you test Jesus? The question on about whose image and inscription are on your life. It is about how you answer the question of whose son is Jesus. And finally, if David calls him Lord, how is he then David's son? The questions of men are all answered in Jesus, but his questions are eternal. And the answers that are given probe our heart's deliberations, dismiss our prejudice, decide our life's destiny, define our life's purpose, determine our eternal state, defy our excuses, and declare Jesus as Lord. Even though the days of the Pharisees and Sadducees are long gone, we still see men today contend with Jesus in hopes of condemning and discrediting him. The questions of men are only answered in Jesus and his answers are intentional that they may probe our hearts, define our life's purpose, determine our eternal state, and ultimately declare Jesus as Lord. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at how we can be a divine opportunist as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.